Let's pray together. As we're singing these past couple of songs, I was just thinking how good it is to know the truth and how rich it is to sing the truth, to know that the things that are being brought before us, the words coming out of our mouths are rooted in and backed up by and affirmed by the Word of God time and time again. And as we're thinking about the great love of God, the goodness and the love of God, I was just taken immediately back. This morning I had the uh, the, the fun and the privilege of teaching the senior high Sunday school class, and we finished in prayer by looking at Psalm 23, the most familiar, probably the best known, or the most loved of the Psalms. And, and in the last verse of Psalm 23, it says this it says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that word loving kindness, it's, it's one of the richest words used uh, in the entire Old Testament. It means mercy. It means grace. It means kindness. It means ultimately the, the best definition is loyal love. And I love that because it, it reminds us, it assures us that as believers, we are not just loved by God. We are loyally loved by God. We are loyally loved. His, his love is not fickle. His love isn't given and withdrawn based on our behavior or our attitude or disposition on any given day. Yes, God wants our best, but he loves us always and deals with us from this heart of, of loyal and steadfast and eternally lasting Love. And what I want you to invite you to do right now, right where you are, and you can do this out loud if you wish, you can just do it quietly in your own heart. But just say, just what we sang, thank you, Lord. We said, thank you for the way that you love us. Say, thank you for loving me when, or thank you for loving me even when. And I just want us to take the next 15 or 20 seconds just to tell God how grateful we are, each one of us, from our own heart. I'm not asking you to shout it out over the next person. I'm simply saying where you are, let's be courageous. Let's open up our mouths and say, Lord, thank you for loving me when. Thank you for loving me even when. And right where we are right now, let's tell God how thankful, how thankful we are for his love. Let's do that right now before the Lord. You know, the, the words we were singing in the song right before that, this beautiful new song that the team taught us this morning, it really is uh, the, the, the line we sang over and over. It's really just the end of, of Psalm 23. Your goodness is running after me, running after me. Surely goodness, goodness, and love, the love of God and the goodness of God will run after us, will chase us down all the days of our lives. And Father, we are so thankful for the assurance of these truths. We worship you this morning as the mighty God. We come before you knowing you are the almighty God. No one can match your power. No one can match your creativity. Father, no one can do the things you do. No one can do them the way that you do them. You are holy and righteous and just and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing. Father, you can do anything. And yet at the same time, at the same time, that's right, amen, at the same time, Father, this almighty God who we should cower in fear from, who we should hide our faces from, says, come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll love you like you've never been loved before. Father, we thank you this morning for the loyal love of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it was love that compelled him to the cross. We thank you that it is love that raised him from the dead. And we thank you that it is in love that he sits at your right hand now, ruling and reigning over us all, bringing all things into subjection under his feet. And one day, Father, we know that what we take today by faith will become sight, and we will see Jesus and his everlasting love face to face. Father, we are so thankful today. We are so humbled today. We're so glad today to be reminded of these things. You are good. You are good. And Father, we know, as we always want to acknowledge at this time, the only reason we know these things is because you revealed them to us in your word. And Father, your word is a precious treasure. Your word is life. Your word is hope. Your word is truth. It is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. It is the the thing you use to correct us, to convict us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us. Father, no preacher can do that. And we don't ever want to make that mistake of thinking it's up to the preacher. Father, it is up to, to your Holy Spirit who is in our midst right now, who dwells in the life of every man, woman, and child who knows you. And we pray that in these moments, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher that you would be the one to guide us in truth, that you would be the one to guard us from error, you would be the one to deliver us from distraction, and you, Holy Spirit, be the one to help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, may it be rejoicing, knowing that wherever the week ahead takes us, whatever circumstances, joys, and trials we face, your goodness will come running after us, and your loyal love will follow us all the days of our life. Father, we love you, we thank you, and in the name of Jesus, all God's children said together, amen, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Are you fired up this morning? I'm a little fired up this morning. I didn't know I was fired up. But apparently I am, and I don't know if that has anything to do with all the donuts we had in the senior high Sunday school class. I think it probably runs a little bit deeper than that, but donuts never hurt, amen? Amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to take it out and meet me this morning in Luke chapter 10. I want you to meet me in your Bible in Luke chapter 10, where we will be studying God's Word today. Uh, finishing out, oh, that's right, I'm getting the signal, hey, something's back, I'm, be, I'm being very forgetful. Uh, today, at long last, Children's Church is back in action. So if you are a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a up to second graders, get out of here. Go with your leader and go have some fun. Go get fired up about Children's Church today. I'm so thankful that we have Children's Church leaders who will step up and, and step in and, and point our kids to Jesus in a dynamic way. And so, boys and girls, you can go have a good time there. And everybody else can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Well, this morning, and, and it, it, it has happened quickly, and that was sort of by design, but we are at the end of our current sermon series. It's lasting a whole three weeks. This series that I have titled Immeasurably More. 
And I realized, however, this week that, that in giving it that title, I have not gone back to even explain where that came from. But, but the, the words immeasurably more actually come from Ephesians chapter 3, from the prayer of the Apostle Paul that he concludes when he says, now we know that God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, that our God, this mighty God, is a God of immeasurably more. And so that's where this idea of, of this series is rooted. We're not preaching that passage, but that's the foundation for it. That God, our God, is the God of immeasurably more. And you say, immeasurably more what? And I say everything, right? And so we've been talking, using that as a framework, about a fresh vision for our church's future. And we've done that from a couple of different passages. Luke 10 is where we'll be today. And we're going to get there in a few minutes. But I really kind of want to set it up before we dive into the text. And then we'll unpack it from there. But as I said, uh, today is the last part of that series. And so in it, I want to share with you, I want to bring to you the third, I'm calling it pillar of our refreshed ministry vision. Now, by way of review, for those of you who have been here, and by way of introduction, for those who have not, I have said the past couple of Sundays, and I believe with all my heart, that as a church, our doctrinal convictions will never change. Uh, and the minute they do, then we don't be a church anymore, all right? There are things the Bible says that are true that are always going to be true. And yet, that, be that as it may, that our doctrinal convictions, the core convictions of our faith, never change. There are, in fact, times in the life of any local church where a fresh expression of our priorities, a fresh expression of ministry priorities, can provide us with a renewed sense of clarity, with a renewed sense of purpose, with a renewed sense of, of energy as we endeavor together to look to and to live for Jesus Christ right where he's placed us, at the, the point in history where he's placed us, with the opportunities he has set before us. That every once in a while we just need to freshen things up so that we can be renewed in our enthusiasm and, and our focus in serving Jesus Christ. I've also said over the past couple of Sundays, and I will affirm it once more again today, that in order for that to work, in order for a fresh ministry vision, any ministry vision, to be more than just art on a wall or on the back of a bulletin, it's got to be memorable. You need to, we need to get to a point very quickly where on a Thursday afternoon, you can call it to mind. Somebody says, where the, that, that church you talk about, what's that place all about? Well, it's about three things, primarily, that impact everything else. It needs to be memorable, and then it needs to be doable got to be able to take what we talk about and put it into action in uncomplicated ways. It's got to be memorable and doable. And so to that end, so far, we have looked at our first ministry priority. Our first refreshed ministry priority has been what we just did, immeasurably deeper worship. Meaning that what happens here on Sunday morning overflows into the rest of our lives. The big idea of that first message was that Immeasurably deeper worship means that we endeavor, we strive to make worship a way of life. I do it all day long, all week long, both in word and thought as well as in action. And then last week we talked about the second pillar of this refreshed ministry vision, uh, which we termed immeasurably richer welcome. That is to say, we are to, as Jesus said, we are to love one another as he has loved us. That I said that each time we gather, Everyone present, everyone present ought to experience some legitimate connectedness, ought to be loved in a way 
that helps them move toward maturity in Jesus Christ. And listen, if you haven't connected with somebody today, do it before you go home, okay? Let's practice what we have been preaching. And we talked about taking initiative. Now, what those two ministry priorities have in common is that they primarily, not exclusively, but primarily happen here. Within these walls, in the context of our regular weekly gatherings, we gather for worship, we gather for fellowship. As I said, it should carry over into the week, but this is where really either we come and get refueled or we get energized or whatever it is to continue in these things. But it's also true that that moving toward maturity in Christ, moving toward spiritual maturity should impact every dimension of our lives, including, if not especially, what happens when we are not here together in our regular weekly gatherings. And why not? After all, a a seven-day week, you may know this, is composed of 168 hours. Every seven-day week is composed of 168 hours, which, if you come to both the equipping hour and worship, you spend three of at church on Sunday morning. Three hours, if you're here for everything. Now, I'm feeling generous this morning, so I'm going to give you credit for two more hours, okay? Because maybe you're in a Bible study or a small group, or you come to a prayer gathering, or you're serving in some way that you are. It's an act of worship to serve the Lord, and you're preparing for that. So let's just say, as I said, because I'm feeling generous, five of those 168 hours are taken up with regular weekly church gatherings, now, you got to sleep. So I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give us credit for that as well. In fact, I'm feeling really generous. I'm going to give you credit for eight hours a night. Now, you smile and laugh and say that doesn't ever, ever happen, but, but it should. So I'm going to say eight hours a night, okay? And, and I'm going to multiply that by seven, which eight times seven is 56. Now, if I take 56 and I add five, I get... Oh, the kids aren't back to school yet, are they? 61, okay, 61 hours, which simple quick math tells me leaves each and every single one of us 107 hours every single week when we are not at church or in bed, 107 hours, right? And, and I get that you don't have control over all 107 of those hours, You have a job to do. You have school to attend. You have obligations, whether you want them or not, that have been placed on your life. You don't control all 107 of those hours, but here's the deal. You're spending them somewhere. Every single one of them is spent somewhere. And I am willing to guess, to bet, that many, many of those hours are spent in the company of people who don't know Jesus Christ the way you do unbelievers, people who've not found Jesus. And that is why the third priority of our refreshed ministry vision is what is that we would be and more and more become people, here it is, of immeasurably greater witness. People of immeasurably deeper worship, immeasurably richer welcome, and immeasurably greater witness. Now, as I've done each week, I want to tell you what I don't mean by immeasurably greater witness, okay? Because what I don't mean, let's do it again, say what he doesn't mean, 
What I don't mean is that we are going to teach you the latest and greatest formula for getting people to say a sinner's prayer. These spiritual laws, this series of verses, you're going to read them and recite them, and then you're going to pray after me. We're not talking, when we talk about witness, we're not simply talking about how to close the deal, spiritually speaking, and that that's what it's all about. What I do mean is that we want to discover, begin to discover together what it means and what it takes, and we're going to put this on the screen because this is our working definition today and going forward, what we mean by immeasurably greater witness is this, that we will learn and put into practice what it means to live in a way that illuminates the transforming love of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn to live more and more in ways that in our words and our deeds illuminate the transforming love of Jesus Christ. Now, sneak preview. Starting next Sunday, we're going to launch a brand new initiative. Well, it's brand new to most of you. It's actually something that many of us on the leadership team have been involved in for the past year. You've probably heard us mention it. It's called Evangelism Shift. And starting next Sunday, we are going to launch that, what is year two for those of us who have been trained, what is year one for those of you who have not been part of that yet. And this, this initiative called Evangelism Shift, we're going to do a year long, essentially for all of the next year, in most of the preaching and in small group context, we're going we're gonna to begin to unpack and discover what it means to live as a witness for Jesus Christ. Not how to close deals, how to live as a witness, how to to live in such a way that people see Christ in us. And so we're going to, starting next Sunday, begin to get in the, into the nuts and bolts of that and spend a lot of time on it. But today we're going to do what we've done the last couple of Sundays. We're going to take sort of the bird's eye view. We're going to speak much more broadly about what it means to live as a witness, what a witnessing life is like from the story here in Luke chapter 10. So with all of that, by way of introduction, I want you to grab your Bible. And I want you to follow along as I read this story, kind of a lengthy story, but a good story, so I want you to do your best to hang with me from really one of the pivotal moments in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin reading in Luke 10, verse 1. I'm going to go through verse 20. This is what the Bible says. It says, now after this, the Lord, Jesus, appointed 70. Now real quick, most of your Bibles there, if you're not reading from the New American Standard, say 72. That's the majority view. There's a little bit of a discrepancy. I'm going to go with 72, even though my Bible says 70. That's out of the way. 72 others. And he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter 
and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, do not be exalted to heaven. You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, as I said, as, as we've done the past couple of Sundays, we're not going to go through and unpack this story line by line and verse by verse. It's a great study, one we should do sometime. It's not what we're going to do today. Instead, what I want to do with this story from the ministry of Jesus is simply direct our attention to three incentives to live as a witness. Basically, I'm going to give you the why of the what that is going to come starting next week and beyond. Three incentives for every follower of Jesus to live as a witness for him. And the first one is this. It's right before us in verses 1 through 3. And it is this. The first incentive Jesus gives to live as a witness is the reality of something called sentness. The reality, number one, of sentness. Now, sentness is a new word for some of you, okay? It was new to me and many others not all that long ago. You may even, if you are into the English language, be wondering, is sentness even a word or did we just make it up? I don't know, but we're using it from now on. And sentness, the reason we're going to be using it, and, and, and I want to bring it to our attention here today, well, it's biblical, of course, but it's also the very, very heart of this evangelism shift initiative that we are entering into. So again, going forward, you're going to hear this word all the time. But for this morning, suffice it to say that sentness, listen, sentness is simply what Jesus does in relationship to his people. Sentness is, is the way Jesus relates to his people. By that I mean this. Number one, Jesus saves. Amen? Jesus saves. Then once Jesus saves, with everyone he saves, he then supplies or equips them. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us spiritual gifts. He puts us in places where we can serve for him. He saves, he supplies, and then thirdly, he sends. Every believer has been sent. Now, at the beginning of Luke chapter 10, Jesus had already done that with the original 12 disciples. If you read the first few verses of Luke 9, you see him give essentially the same message we just read here in Luke chapter 10. He sent the 12 disciples out to minister and preach in his name. And now here he does it again with the 72 now, I want you to listen, okay, to the first three verses as I read them again. Follow along in your Bible. 
Now, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and, what does it say? Sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, verse 3, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus sends. Jesus saves, Jesus supplies, and Jesus sends. Now, let me give you a a couple of real fun but also important facts about these first three verses and, and that all sort of relate to this idea of sentness. Number one, these aren't on the screen, this is just some stuff I want to share. I think it's important. Number one, we don't know for sure why Jesus chose 72 to send out after the 12. As I said, he already sent the 12. Now he's sending 72. But one of the things we know about the Bible, and you have to be careful with this sort of thing, but often in the Bible, numbers have significance. Things are rarely random. We know they're not coincidental in the Bible. And at that particular point in history, it was generally believed in the Jewish culture in the Middle East and beyond that there were 72 nations on the planet. There were 72 known nations. And so, it's thought that perhaps what Jesus is sort of saying without saying here is, yes, I'm sending you out into Israel, but brace yourselves, guys, this is a message for the whole wide world. What I am sending you out to do is for everyone. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to take note of the fact that in verse 3, when he calls his witnesses lambs, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I think it's worth noting that the suggestion, the idea there is that unlike many, if not most other religious faiths, listen, and this will be important as we think about living as a witness, that the gospel is a message to be spread by grace, not force. The gospel is a message spread by grace, not by force. We bear witness to it. And thirdly, and most importantly here, under this just this whole theme and reality of sentness is this. That when verse 1 says, Now after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come, the message is this. As we obey, listen, as we obey, Jesus shows up. As we obey, Jesus shows up. Jesus does not do the work of bearing witness for us. Jesus does the work of bearing witness through us. And you can go all the way back, all throughout the Old Testament. That is always the way God works with his people. Step in the water, and then I'll part the river, right? Go, and I will go march around the city and blow your little trumpets, and the walls will fall down. You go, I'll show. You do, and I will supply. That's the message when it comes to bearing witness. We obey, Jesus shows up. And while it ought to go without saying, I'll say it anyway, that there is a wealth of evidence throughout, scattered throughout the New Testament, that what Jesus said to the 72 here is by extension said to you and to me. Whether it's Paul in in one place, he's telling the Corinthians, imitate me as I am an imitator of Christ. Where he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Timothy, 
By implication, you may not have the gift of an evangelist. You may not feel like an evangelist, but you know what I want you to do? I want you to do the work of an evangelist, whether you feel equipped and gifted for that or not. Then, of course, there's a great commission from Jesus himself. Go, therefore, into all the world. Make, the, make disciples of, of all the nations. He didn't just mean for, for the, now the 11 at that point to do it. He wanted all of us to do it. And so the first thing we need to see when it comes to, to incentive, the incentive for, for living as a witness is, is that sentness is a reality we're all supposed to embrace. You may want to write this in your notes. I have been sent. If you know Jesus, you have been Sent, you've got a job. I call that incentive right there because Jesus gave it to us. So that's the first thing we need to see. The second incentive comes actually at the very end of the story, at the end of this morning's passage in verses 17 through 20. And it's this, the second incentive for us to live as a witness, along with the reality of sentness, is what I would call the prospect of gladness. The prospect, maybe even the, the promise if you will, of gladness. Now, I don't know how close you were paying attention, excuse me, when I got to the end of the passage this morning, but, uh, but it's worth pointing out that, uh, that a couple of these verses in, verse, in, the, in the section of verses 17 through 20 have inspired a lot of weirdness in the church down through the ages, okay? Last week I said to you, churches are weird. Well, the fact is some are weirder than others, and some take the Bible and do very, very strange things with it for whatever reason that may be. So let me just get this out of the way by saying suffice it to tell you that, that when verse 19, look at your Bible, says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions... Uh, and over the power of the enemy, uh, so that nothing were, will injure you, that, that I would submit to you, that is descriptive of the Holy Spirit's promise of protection. Okay? Descriptive of a, of a promise of protection. Basically, you're not going to get hurt in this life unless God uh, permits that or causes that to happen. As you bear witness, nothing can harm you, and anything that does is part of my plan. Okay? It's descriptive. It is not prescriptive. As, as in some sort of instruction to go out and start kissing rattlesnakes or, or, or handling scorpions as some sign of spiritual power. And there are believers who, who for whatever, and maybe they're believers, maybe they aren't, but there are people who have taken instructions like this that way. That is not what it's being said. It says God's hand of protection is on you as you bear witness for him. Whatever touches you is part of his plan. Even so, what we see in the story is that having been sent out by Jesus in this way, these 72 disciples saw some miraculous stuff. It says they performed works of healing. Imagine that. As they, as they talked about Jesus, people's broken limbs were healed. People's diseased lives were, were cured. They'd done miracles. They'd seen wonders. They had even participated in, in acts of, 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 of demonic, uh, of, of removing demonic oppression, exercising demons from people's lives, and that they had done so, what we're being told at the end of the passage, is they had done such things to such a degree that, as Warren Wearsby helpfully puts it, the individual victories they had seen from city to city, having gone out by pairs, all these little individual victories of healing and exorcism and whatever else, they were seen by Jesus as, quote, part of a war that had dethroned and defeated Satan. So I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
This is a spiritual battle that you are engaged in. But then, with that said, as they're rejoicing and celebrating all of this miraculous stuff they'd seen and the fact that it is doing harm to the cause of Satan and they are seeing victories won, then, in the only instance I know of in the Bible where Jesus tells somebody not to rejoice, here's what he said in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in the fact that you can cast out a demon. Don't rejoice in the fact that you can heal someone who is ill or lame or infirm or whatever the case may be. No, he says this. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, why would Jesus say that? Don't rejoice in the miracles. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. Well, the reason Jesus says that, and this is so easy to forget, because signs and wonders are attractive to us too. But the reason Jesus says that is this. It is because the greatest and most eternally significant miracle of all is that of one human soul being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. There's no greater miracle than the miracle of redemption, of salvation. That's the greatest thing of all. And so Jesus says to them, he says, guys, the miracle worth rejoicing over most is, is that of salvation. So rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There's a, a book, a, a list, a scroll somewhere. Your name is written on it in God's book of salvation, and then by extension again, rejoice in the privilege that you can point others to me so that their names are written in that book as well. That's what the mission is all about, pointing people, bearing witness to Christ. Now with that said, let me ask you a question. And I mean this as a serious question. And I want you not to raise your hand, I just want you to, want you to come up with your own honest answer. And the question is this, does... Does the idea of sharing the gospel with other people fill you with the prospect of gladness? Does it fire you up to think, I'm going to go tell some people. I'm going to tell my coworkers today about Jesus. I'm going to go tell my neighbors today about Jesus. Does the thought of bearing witness for Christ fill you with joy? I'm sure for some of us the answer is yes. I'm guessing that for most of us it may be, if not, no, not so much, Right? Leave it to the guys and gals who are good at it. But talking to people about Jesus doesn't necessarily fire me up. Well, you've got to be honest about where you are if you're going to get where God wants you to go. And so I don't, I'm not going to ask you to share with me or your neighbor or your spouse what your answer to that question is, but I want you to be honest about what your answer to that question is. How do I feel about bearing witness for Christ? How do I feel if God wants to adjust some things in the way I live my life, the way I conduct myself, the places I go, the things that I do? And, and what, how do I feel about the fact that if I really buy into this with my whole heart, he at some point probably is going to have me open up my mouth and talk about Jesus? Can that fill me with joy? Maybe today it can't, but I think as we move forward in the weeks and months to come, it will. If we give ourselves fully to what Jesus shows us in his word. We're probably all over the map in answer to that question today when it comes, we're willing to buy into the reality of sentness. We're not perhaps so sure about the prospect of gladness. Well, that's why there's one more thing I want you to see in the story this morning. And it comes in the, the in-between 
verses 1 through 3 and verses 17 through 20, and it is this, that in verses 4 through 16, we are given, we are shown, third and finally, this is the third incentive to live as a witness, serious grounds for boldness. There are, there is in this story grounds for boldness in living as a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, let me see if I can summarize this as swiftly as possible. So first of all, in verses 4 through 12, Jesus gives these 72 a series of instructions. And suffice it to say that in those verses, his point is this. Is it's meant to convey a sense of urgency. To say, as I'm sending you out, stay focused on the task. Remember what job one is, bearing witness for me. And don't let other things pull you away from it. Now, furthermore... In verses 13, 14, and 15, Jesus is declaring to them a very important principle, and it is this, that the greater your exposure to the gospel, the more accountable you are for what you do with it. The greater your exposure to the gospel, as an unbeliever, as well as a believer, what are you going to do with this? This this message, this call, this commission of, of sentness. And, and, and what Jesus is doing in those verses is he's, he, he gives them an example. Because, you see, he talks about a couple of cities. Cities we may not know anything about. Chorazin and Bethsaida. Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida were, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, two of the towns where he did many, many miracles. He did all sorts of ministry there. And then it talks in the next verse, I think verse 14, about Capernaum. Capernaum, after Jesus left Nazareth, left the life of a carpenter to begin ministry, Capernaum became his adopted hometown. Did all kinds of stuff there, too. And by and large, all three of those cities flat out rejected him. There were believers, but not many. And he says, listen, what you've been exposed to, you are accountable for. What you have been told, you have to answer for. Now, with that said, again, there's there's so much more we could dig into there. But Jesus draws it down to this kernel of truth in verse 16. The one... He's talking to the 72, but by extension to us, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me is actually rejecting God the Father, the one who sent me. You know the old saying, don't blame me, I'm just the messenger, right? You've used that before. Don't blame me. I didn't, I didn't do it. I'm just, I'm just telling you. This is the way it is. Don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. That's kind of sort of what Jesus is telling us here, only in a really good way, in a really, I think, inspiring and, and emboldening way. Because, yes, learning to speak with others about your faith in Jesus Christ, it shouldn't scare us, but it does. It, it makes us nervous for all sorts of different reasons. Yes, learning to share, to bear witness with your mouth for Jesus Christ can be scary. And no, none of us is guaranteed that each time we do it, somebody's going to get saved. That's just not how it works. As we'll see, people are at all stages of, of the journey, of the path, of coming to grips with the message of the gospel. And maybe sometimes we're the first time they've ever heard it. So maybe they're not going to respond today. There's no guarantee But what Jesus is saying in verse 16 is, hey guys, that's okay. That is okay. Live as a witness anyway. Because what Jesus is saying is this, it's not about you. It's about me. 
It's not about what they think of you. It's about what they think of me. It's not, what, it's not about what they, they think of us. It's about what they think of him. Jesus is drawing a straight line from our witness to his sacrifice to his heavenly father's offer of salvation. And so what he's simply telling them and, and begins telling us here is, so how about, since it's all about me, let's just send you out to live as a witness. Live in a way in word and deed, that illuminates the transforming love of Jesus Christ. And when those occasions come, when I give you opportunity to speak, when there's a, a moment in the conversation to be seized, and it may not be, hey, here's the whole message of the gospel, but, but what do you think about Jesus? Have you ever read the Bible? Or whatever it is. When that moment comes, open up your mouth and trust me. I'll do the heavy lifting of conviction and redemption. I just need you to tell them. Live in such a way that those opportunities come. And when the opportunities come, guess what? We obey and Jesus shows up. And then what happens is up to him. Because it's not about us. In other words, the message is this. Live out your sentness with the prospect of gladness in a spirit of boldness, and that will be enough. That's the whole deal. We just have to learn how. Now, forgive me if this sounds unspiritual, because it might. But I have never, I've heard and I've studied, I've taken classes on evangelism. And through all of that, there's been good and bad and, and, and whatever else, and you've been exposed perhaps to a good deal of it too. But along the way, one of the expressions in terms of evangelism I have never cared for is the term soul winning. Let's go out and be soul winners for Jesus Christ. And if you like that, I'm sorry. That's okay. I don't. And the reason I don't like it, and that's just me. This isn't, I'm not preaching. I'm just sharing. The reason I don't like it is because to me, it's always sounded like when we talk about being soul winners for Jesus, is that it's just simply all about the result. It's all about the result. As, as if sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is it, 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 basically equivalent to how many candy bars can you sell? How many downline can you sign up? Because if you do enough, you'll win a prize. And, and I don't think that sharing the gospel is, is supposed to be that way. So I don't like the idea of soul winning. Because I think it becomes all about results. And try a couple times and get any results. We'll leave it, to, again, to somebody who knows what they're doing. But it's clearly not for me. That's not what the Bible says at all. I know that Paul, in a certain place, talked about becoming all things to all men, that he might by all means win some. But again, he's being descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. He's not saying we're all soul winners. But what the Bible says is we are all to bear witness. We're all to live as witnesses. And again, along the way, how those we speak with respond, that's between them and the Lord and that's why today's big idea, as really with the past couple of weeks, is an invitation. It's an invitation to join me, because I have to go a long way on this too, to join us to dig into this ministry priority, and over the weeks and months to come, here it is, just let's commit to learning what it means to live as a witness. It's not about formulas, it's not about strategies, it's not about how many wins can you rack up. Let's just learn what it means to live as a witness and see what Jesus might do through us.
as a result. Let's live, let's learn what it means to live in a way that illuminates what we've been singing about and, and, and clapping for all morning, the love of Jesus Christ, the transforming love of Jesus Christ, and he'll take care of the rest. Father, Father, you know that each one of us who knows you have people in our lives that we desperately want to know Jesus the way we have come to know Jesus. And Father, some of them are uninformed and some are indifferent and some are stubbornly resistant. And Father, some days that, that frustrates us and some days that, that breaks our heart and, and some days we think, why bother? Because it never works. It never makes any difference. And Father, maybe all that's true. But you have called us to embrace the reality of sentness. You have made it clear in your word that we can live as witnesses in a way that, that creates and generates the prospect of joy and of gladness. And Father, you, you really have, despite what my own experience in trying to do this has, has been for me, that we have every reason for boldness. We need not be afraid. Father, would you take these truths and not just fire us up with them, Father, but would you just send them, begin to, to dig down and, and plant them in our hearts. Father, every, every plant, every tree starts as a seed. The seed's got to get planted. Father, we're going to do some planting today and in the weeks to come. And, and Father, as, as we begin to be watered and as we're exposed to the light of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that Lord, six months from now, a year from now, we'll be very different people because we have been even more changed, transformed by the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, we are committed to living in such a way that others can see and follow him too. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We ask you to take the things of truth spoken here today and again. Father, just seal them up in our hearts so they are not lost or forgotten and let everything else just be pushed aside so that we leave looking to and loving Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.